Welcome to today's Leancast with myself, Kate Kerr, and Luke Pembroke from HeMnet. And we are joined by Jonathan Berry from NHS England. And we'll be talking about health literacy and shared decision making. Hi, everyone. My, my name's um, Jonathan Berry, and I work for NHS England and Improvement. And I'm the national lead there for health literacy. My background is that I've worked in a number of patient experience, patient participation, facing roles over a number of years, both within the NHS and the voluntary and community sector. And I guess that as my career has developed, I've more and more become aware that one of the challenges that many people face when trying to participate in um, decisions about their health and their care, all aspects of their health and um, their care is that sometimes they don't have the health literacy levels to enable them to do so in a really effective and engaging way. And that as a system, we don't always recognize that as well. I completely agree with you there, but could you tell us what you think we all mean by health literacy? So I'm going to be really boring now, and I'm going to actually define it as the World Health Organization defines it. And the reason I do that is because I think it's a really helpful definition, and they call it the personal characteristic and social resources needed for individuals and communities to access, understand, praise, and use health information and services to make decisions about their health. And why I think that's a really useful um, definition is because it actually recognizes there are two sides to the coin. So there is our, as patients, as um, members of the community, there's our responsibility to be health literate. But actually, it also importantly recognises that the system itself has a responsibility to be health literate and to not put up barriers that actually make it even harder uh, for people to actually do that, accessing, appraising and using information and services. And I think that's a bit of a move in a way, because for many years, it was more conceptualised as individual responsibility to be health literate. But I think that definition balances out a lot more. And I think it's a lot, it's a lot fairer, really, because I think we all know that we have individual responsibilities where we can be to be health literate. But also those of us working in the system, like ourselves, also know that we do sometimes, often inadvertently, put barriers in the way of people actually being able to engage in the way that they perhaps would like to, in a way that's functional as well. It means something to them. So do you think that health literacy does mean something to the average member of the public or is it only something that is important once you become ill? I, first of all, I don't think the words health literacy mean a great deal to, 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 to members of the public any way. And in some ways, I think it'd be really wonderful, wouldn't it? But I bet we say this about a lot of things. If we could just go back 25 years when this concept was being really developed and find a better name. Um, for it than health literacy. So I don't think the words mean anything to people, but what I do think is that concept of being able to engage in decisions about your health and your well-being in a way that you actually understand means a lot to people. And also if you look at health literacy in, in those three levels of um, functional inter interactive and critical, then actually, if you have critical health literacy skills, then you are engaging in conversations um, about health in the widest sense of the word. And that doesn't necessarily have to be when you are unwell or supporting a family member um, or friend who is unwell. So yes, I think people are interested in health. You know, 
health is very contentious and also a very political arena. And I think people are actually interested in it for all of those reasons as well. So I don't think health literacy in its broadest sense is about when people are unwell. But clearly what you do want is people to be able to have functional health literacy skills so they can actually figure out and follow what they're being told about their health and their um, well-being and where appropriate that they're actually able to act on decisions that that are being made and actually sharing those decisions that are being made as well. So, and I, and I think that's probably why um, Don Nutbeeb, who writes a lot in this area, has described it in those three ways as functional, interactive and critical. And unfortunately in this country, one of the issues that we do face is that there's quite a lot of people who really don't have those functional health literacy skills at the moment. And that's when a lot of energy is focused up for obvious reasons in, in the past and still is doing. So how do we make that better? If I'm thinking now of all of the patients that I've come across in my career who perhaps weren't health literate, and many of them come from those difficult to reach communities, how do we improve that? So I think it's a really challenging question. And obviously, if there was a very simple answer, we'd, I wouldn't be talking to you now because my job wouldn't exist because we'd have done it really, wouldn't we? But I think there are a number of ways. I think the first thing is, and I don't quote statistics very often, but relatively recent work done by the Institute of Health Equity and Public Health England demonstrated that between 43 and 61% of English working age adults routinely don't understand health information. In other words, they don't have the health literacy level to be able to understand the information. And I think the very first thing that we actually have to do, Kate, is just to get some greater awareness of the extent of that issue. Because I think often when I talk to people about health literacy, I think they think it's a bit of a minority issue, but obviously 43% a sizable minority and 61%, and that 61% spike is usually where there's some elements or components of numeracy involved in the information. And I'm, um, then they realize that actually 61% is actually quite a large well, a majority of the population. And those figures are fairly consistent across England. There are regional variations, but they're not massively, there's not massive regional variations. Um, so I think that's the first thing we have to do, just get that awareness that it is an issue. And what we're really keen to promulgate is this idea that we take universal precautions. Obviously, it would be ideal if we could do some work actually in increasing the health of the skills of the population, as certainly work along that lines is going on in various places. But that's obviously quite a large um, and long-term piece of work. So for me, one of the things that we really need to think about is, to, is to taking the universal precautions, i.e. using adaptive communication techniques such as TeachBack, and also making sure that all of the written information that we produce is goes through readability tests. And, and other things similar to that. So that actually what we're doing is we're in, we're ensuring that we assume that a lot of people we'll be seeing will have health literacy skills. So we're adapting our communication techniques, using techniques like teach back, chunking and checking what we're telling them, giving them information that's functional, i.e. not written at too high a level so they can't actually make sense of it and apply it to their everyday circumstances. And if we then find in our conversations, I'm sure you have in your career, Kate, with patients, you said you get people who aren't struggling with health literacy, you know, in fact, are expert patients, then you can tailor your communication style accordingly. But I think that whole taking of universal precautions is, is a key thing, because in that way, we, we're, we're much more likely to be able to safety net people and not have people, as we often, as we all are uh, hardwired to do, just simply saying, yes, I understand everything you told me, doctor, nurse, health professional, because none of us like to say we don't understand, because we're a bit hardwired not to come across as, you know, lacking the comprehension skills. I just wanted to pick up on the 
topic of, of teach back that you mentioned there. And, uh, that's something as a patient, I found very useful when it came to consolidating and remembering key information about my condition and my health. I remember reading something many years ago or hearing at a university that you retain something like 10 to 15% of what you're taught, but then it's something like 90% of what you teach. So I think that's a really powerful method for getting people to understand things about their health and developing their health literacy. I wondered how do we better facilitate those opportunities? Obviously we know that conversations between healthcare professionals and patients might not always be that back and forth. Are there other areas within the community, such as patient organizations that might be able to facilitate these opportunities? Where are the opportunities for having the chance to do things like teach back? I think they're everywhere to be absolutely honest, because for me, an optimal conversation and the other area that I'm very involved in is shared decision-making where clinicians and patients come together and talk through the evidence, risks and benefits, alternatives, and also take very much into account people's circumstances, preferences, etc. So for me, every time we have one of those type of conversations, there's also an opportunity for teach back because as you rightly say, it's, a, it can be quite an empowering technique for patients because in what we're doing essentially is taking the essence of accountability from the patients in terms of patient comprehension and placing it very firmly on us, the deliverers of the information to make sure that we've communicated in a way that's appropriate for the person. So it's in many ways, it's quite a simple thing, Luke, in that actually people just made small minor adaptations to their consultation style. It could be as simple as saying, so when you get home tonight, what are you going to tell your husband, wife, mother, father, um, partner, sister, brother about what we've talked about. And then that gives me or you an opportunity to then say, so I think what we said was blah, 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 blah. And you can then say, oh, obviously I didn't quite get that, but this is what I meant to say to you. And so it becomes much more of a conversation of equals without any of that sort of, that whole test of, as I say, that whole test of comprehension, which is quite a daunting thing. I think it's going to require a bit of a culture change. That's part of the work that we're trying to do. I work in the NHS England and improve it in what's called the personalized care group. And that's about how we can make services as personalized possible. One of the things I think that we're really clear about is that we're going to have to work very hard with people to actually get them to tailor their conversations and frame their conversations with patients in a different way. I'm hopeful that at some point in the future, because we have what's called a personalized care institute, and I'm hopeful at some point in the future, there'll be a learning module for clinicians on TeachBack so they can actually have a little bit of a, an opportunity to think about it in practice and trial it because it seems simple, doesn't it? So you need to adopt this quite simple communication technique. It's, it's relatively simple to do, but actually if you've been used to practicing in one particular way, and then we're asking you to practice in another way, that could sometimes be quite daunting and quite challenging. So sometimes people just need a little bit of help, like a learning module, followed by an opportunity to practice it before they actually go live, um, so to speak. So I think that's one way. I think the other way, I think this is where your point about patient organizations and community organizations comes in. And I'm very keen that certainly in the shared decision-making arena, we're very keen on prepared patients. So it's about actually people really understanding that asking questions, uh, and 
that it's okay to not understand and to say that you don't understand and to actually have some form of communication, health literate communication, I should add, about that before you actually go and see a health professional would be really helpful as well. So I think that, and I think community organizations, one sector organizations can really help there in spreading the message that it's okay to ask. And it's okay to ask again, if you don't understand, they have a really wonderful initiative in Stoke-on-Trent, a partnership between the CCG, the local hospital acute trust and the local authority. They have an initiative called It's Okay to Ask, which very much major on all of that. And they've got some wonderful videos there where they've got various clinicians. And I think they've got some patient ones as well, actually explaining the benefits and the advantages of why asking is a good thing to do. So could I just ask you, going back into the shared decision-making, because I think at the moment in the world of haemophilia and bleeding disorders, we're at a really interesting point where the sort of old-fashioned replacement therapy is going and new and novel therapies, new monoclonal antibodies, gene therapy are all coming. Some people with haemophilia are certainly expecting that and they are starting to think about how do they get that if their clinician maybe doesn't think they're the right person for it. So, you know, in the past, in the clinical trials, as healthcare professionals, we always pick the best patient in inverted commas to be in the trials because we know that they will do what we want them to do or what the trial needs them to do. So how do we get, and maybe it's that difficult to reach group again, how do we ensure that they have the right health literacy to be able to make those shared decisions and to be included in the new treatments moving forwards? I think there's two separate questions there. I think there's about the engagement with people. And then I think there's the actual health literate conversation about risks and um, benefits. In terms of the engagement with people, I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the risks of lots of initiatives is that we inadvertently widen health inequalities. So we improve, for example, in health literacy terms, if we're not careful, you improve the health literacy of the already quite health literate. So you're leaving even further behind those people who probably start with lower levels of health literacy anyway. So I think here is where you have to act. I think this is where things like population health management and techniques will become really useful. We're working with local authority public health teams who understand community development approaches and also can use really useful data like geodata, which is the data that sort of enables you to understand health literacy levels at a local level. So you can target your interventions and your engagements at those communities. So I think there's a whole range of different techniques that you can use there. And then I think in the actual conversation, and this isn't just about haemophilia, I would argue, this is about almost any clinical decision-making uh, that you need to do about your health and your um, well-being. And then it's about having a really good health literate shared decision-making conversation where the clinician brings their expertise and that expertise is usually around evidence, risks and benefits, and the patient brings their values their preferences and their circumstances. And then together they involve themselves in the decision-making process, which of course ultimately is the patients. But what you would hope is if you get that right and it's health literate and both sides are understanding each other and using appropriate techniques like teach bag, et cetera, et cetera. What you would hope is that actually that, that really important powerful marrying of clinical expertise and their expertise will, will mean that the right decision automatically falls out because with any kind of clinical intervention, there are going to be some people for whom clinically it's not necessarily appropriate, but you need to have that conversation for them to understand why clinically it may not be appropriate. And equally, 
where it is clinically appropriate for some people in some circumstances, it might not be appropriate in terms of their everyday needs, requirements, circumstances, and preferences. If, I mean, surgery is a really good example. If actually you're a single parent uh, working two jobs with um, two small children, actually having the kind of operation that makes you order combat for six or seven weeks just isn't going to be feasible, is it? So it's about how you bring all these two together and have that decision-making process like that. But I absolutely agree with you. I think the key bit is always to ensure that you're involving those people who are perhaps furthest away from being able to have that conversation and who traditionally, as you say, are probably the people who most need to have that conversation, most likely to actually live with health inequalities. So obviously, if you are like in the area where we work with people with bleeding disorders, these are genetic conditions. And so they are born with them and they often come from families where the family is affected by the same condition. And so their normal is different to yours and my normal. And as those children grow up, they have to develop some self-management skills and come to a point where they transition from lovely, touchy-feely paediatric services into horrible, scary adult services and become responsible for themselves. So how do we do all of that health literacy with little people from the age of, what, seven or something upwards? Any key themes or thoughts you could share there with it it is it is a challenge but i think it's about and i think and this is where the personalization thing i think is important because every child young person's going to be different and every child and young person's probably going to want to be involved in a different way in those um kind of conversations so it's recognizing that for starters i would love to see one day that health literacy is something that maybe gets a place on the curriculum so that it be, and again, I wouldn't necessarily call it health literacy because I don't think that's necessarily the most engaging of titles where actually at a younger age, people are able to understand that having these kind of conversations is is well actually shared decision making is um, a requirement so having conversations like that's a requirement and that actually it is an expectation and they should expect that these conversations are functional they can understand them make sense of them and apply them to their everyday circumstances i think in the interim i think it's just about services and being as sensitive as possible to to the needs of um, children, young people, and ha and having those conversations at a point when they and the child and the young the child the child or young person thinks that's a good time to have those conversations. There's recently, in fact, very recently, hot off the press, Nice have just published a guideline on services for children, young people, and they actually have a section on shared decision making in there, which, without actually mentioning health literacy, does actually say that a lot of the conversations that you need to have with children, and young people, need to be stratified to account to circumstances but also need to be health literate so it was a difficult question but i think that's probably at the moment the, the place where we are and i think also to as the pediatric person myself we do all that education with the parents at the beginning and we assume that the parents are getting new information as new things come along and that they're then telling their children about it and actually mostly they're not so i think it really shows that we need to be you know, this is a continuum of a journey. It's not sit down with you for one hour now and you'll go out and be a completely health literate and we never need to think about it again. It is. And people will be in different places in terms of their health literacy journey, their health, where their health literacy levels. So it will be a tailored and a personalized conversation for each and um, every individual. And I guess we're all 
probably, we're, and we're all learning to some degree, aren't we? Because all of us, to some degree, when we start with a diagnosis of a long-term condition, we're on a learning journey. And as most long-term conditions are for life, that is then a lifelong learning um, journey about that condition. So we're enhancing our levels of our, our health literacy as we go through life. It's just that... As I said, as I said, the research tells us that some people are starting from a lower baseline than others in that, in that journey. Interestingly, there's been some recent research from Sheffield, I'm sure it was Sheffield University, and some of the things that they've told us that are, that are sort of pertinent to this conversation. In fact, the prime focus of their research was people's use of GP, A&E and emergency ambulance services, but they used some health literacy questionnaire questions as part of this research. And there were some specific health literacy findings coming out of it. And it's quite interesting really, isn't it? Because one of the findings particularly surprised me, but health literacy levels were statistically significantly lower among men. Possibly not a surprise to some people. <laughs> among people with lower levels of learning, which I'm sure surprises none of us. Among people who experience deprivation, which again, I'm sure is no surprise. Among people, among younger people. So that really is interesting about your point there, Kate. But also, and I think this is the one that surprised me the most, also um, among people who actually live with a long-term condition. And that kind of surprised me because it's, it challenges a bit of the orthodoxy, isn't it? That lots of people who live with long-term conditions have become expert patients. And this research from Sheffield is telling us the contrary, which I think is really interesting. I don't know, Luke, would you like to comment on that? Are you an expert person with here, or are you an expert person from stop? <laughs> yeah, so I'm called. It's really interesting that you bring that point up because it, I was just thinking about an earlier point you made that I think relates to, to what you just said, that we don't want to fall into that trap of creating more inequity where the already quite health literate or people with higher health literacy skills are the ones receiving the support that just increases it. So I, I want, I would wonder, maybe you'd like to speculate on, on what you think it is about living with a long term condition that, that maybe creates that effect, but how do you think we avoid falling into that trap of creating this echo chamber where people assume that a small handful of well-educated patients or patients of a certain demographic represent the entire patient community overall. First of all, I think, I don't know if I can explain why people in this research, people with a long-term condition, experience lower levels of health, which I'm still trying to process that uh, myself because it was slightly surprising because it goes against a lot of the orthodoxy. In terms of how do we avoid, let's turn that around, let's look in a more positive. How do we actually engage in a better way with people who um, traditionally experience challenges with health literacy? I think one way, and I'd be interested in your views, on this. I think one thing we have to do is change the culture a little bit. I've often, when I've spoken about the fact that we need to take universal precautions, we need to pitch our literature, we need to pitch our conversations in such a way that we take account of people with people's lower levels of health literacy. One of the pushbacks I often get is that's very patronizing. And actually we don't want to patronize people. I, 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 and my response to that is usually, no, we don't. 
But actually, it's probably more worrying if somebody leaves a consultation not understanding what their diagnosis is than that somebody leaves feeling patronised. But actually, skilled clinicians, and I don't need to tell you this, and there are many skilled clinicians out there, skilled clinicians will soon pick up on this and will adapt their communication techniques accordingly. So if you suddenly have somebody who is an expert in their in them, in their condition and in them and in themselves and makes that really clear to you, you would adapt your communication technique to be obviously a more it would a more, a more clinical and more scientific conversation than you perhaps might have with somebody who hasn't got uh, who hasn't quite got that same interest and expertise about themselves. So I think that's one thing we have to challenge that culture a little bit and and move it away from people feeling uh, it's about being patronising in inverted commas. I've heard the expression we don't want to dumb down. Yes, we don't want to patronise, but actually what we don't want to do is produce lots of information that 43 to 61% of the English working age population can't actually understand because that's actually not the point of what we're, what we're trying to do, is it? I think the second thing to do, and this is like a gold standard approach, and I realise it's not always easy, but actually when we're producing written materials, we really need to consult with people with lower levels of health literacy because I think for me, if they can understand them, then we can be pretty sure, using universal precaution, that the rest of the population will be able to understand it as well. So for me, it's about actually using those kind of techniques around old-style community development type techniques so we can go out into those communities where we know that deprivation, exclusion, and therefore almost certainly health literacy is um, prevalent. We just need to make sure that there's some training available so that those clinicians who feel a bit uncertain about adopting different types of um, communication techniques, such as teach back, have actually got a little bit of a module to do them a bit of a grounding in this and an ability to practice it before they, as I say, go live. So I think it's a combination really, isn't it, of cultural change, seeking out those people who experience lower levels of health literacy and getting their views on our written material. And then in terms of the actual conversation, it's about preparing people to expect to have a functional conversation and also preparing clinicians through a bit of learning to actually be able to have a different type of conversation as well. Yeah, I really agree with the point you make about seeking out those with lower levels of health literacy. And I think in recent years, a, a trap we've fallen into in the bleeding disorders and haemophilia community is often consulting the expert patients all the time and the same people repeatedly to input on these materials being developed. And we need to do better and have a culture shift towards involving those who don't necessarily come from as privileged a background on the education front or haven't been as engaged as, from a young age in their health condition. And, and you learn a lot actually by doing that. I've done quite a lot of that in my career. And I just some really interesting piece of work for a um, breast cancer charity quite a few numbers of, of years ago now. And they, it was about testing some of their leaflets and materials. And they were quite clear. They said, I'm sure it'll come back as being uh, not health literate, not understandable, but they said, I'm sure they will understand the three basic things of checking your breast and your arm and your collarbone. And what was really interesting was that I think about 90% of them I spoke to didn't actually understand about checking up to the collarbone. So actually by engaging with people like that, some of our assumptions are challenged and in a good way, in many ways, because actually the charity suddenly realized that actually people really weren't understanding exactly what they were being told. So they actually were able to modify and change their information. So it, it has those beneficial unintended consequences of doing it as well. 
I guess the reason people are a little bit reluctant to do it is that it can sometimes feel quite onerous and time consuming, but I guess that's where actually making, having those links with organizations at local level, who've got, who've got those established networks really helps in, in doing that. I've really enjoyed this conversation and it's really helpful to hear from a more general perspective, these issues around health literacy and how they apply to a, a rare disease area, such as bleeding disorders. I think the one thing that the past year has probably revealed, and it'd be interesting to maybe get your thoughts on this is we've gone through a global pandemic and we said at the beginning that is health literacy only important for people who are ill. And I think the last year has shown us that's not the case with new vaccines coming out, a virus that spread across the world that people didn't really understand. What sort of shortcomings do you think it revealed in terms of health literacy amongst the general population? And, and what do you think we should prioritize moving forwards? I think that's a really interesting point. And it's, and in, and in some ways, I think we, the point about health literacy only when you're unwell is worth, it's a point worth returning to, because obviously in some of our activities, we're actually trying to prevent. So actually the screening programs, cervical cancer, breast screening, bowel screening, et cetera, they're not of course targeted at people that are unwell, that they're, they're targeted, that they're set up, aren't they, with the intention of actually catching things before people become so unwell that you can really not do very much for them. So I, I think that's right. I think what it shows to me is that actually from an organization like mine, which has got responsibility for the system, we also have to work in a collaborative way with organizations like Public Health England and Health Education England, who've got responsibility for workforce training, for public health, as well as with community and voluntary sector organizations. So that actually what we do when we are working at national level on health literacy, that our messages actually encompass all areas where health literacy is important and don't just become as you about the clinical environment, but become about the whole health and well-being environment. So that's one of my biggest takeaways from this, if I'm absolutely honest. And the one thing I would say, and I meant to say this uh, when we were talking about testing materials with people with lower levels of health literacy, you don't have to test them necessarily with people who have the condition either. You can just test them with anybody because actually, maybe not every condition, people are always going to have to, the potential to develop quite a significant number of conditions. So actually many ways, actually people who have no knowledge and understanding of that condition, but may develop it one day or may not, perhaps going to be even more valuable to you than people who've actually got some understanding of, the, of, of that condition, regardless of their levels of health literacy. And I found that's worked quite often very well. You, know, you just go and talk to a general group of people from a particularly deprived community about a particular topic and hear and, and share information with them. And it's really useful then what feedback you get. And the other thing I would just say is that for me, what's really heartening though, is that organizations like yourselves are actually thinking about this. And I'd just like to say that's really great because the more organizations like yourselves that are thinking like this and having conversations like this, the more likely we are to be able to actually achieve something positive in this area. So Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us today for what was, I think, a very interesting at Heencast. Jonathan has talked about universal precautions throughout today's HeanCast and for those of us that are healthcare professionals we would ordinarily think of that as being masks and gloves and gowns and particularly at the moment with coronavirus we spend an awful lot of time 
donning and doffing our PPE. Wouldn't it be marvellous if in five years time, whilst we were still doing that, we were thinking also about the health literacy needs of patients and families and how we could improve that along with their shared decision making as we move forward with treatment in the future. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of HemeCast. We hope you found it interesting. And if you have any thoughts or comments about the topic of health literacy, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email to hello at hemenet.com or if Twitter is your thing, you can chat with us there at HemeNet. And you never know, we might even feature some of your comments in an upcoming episode. Finally, thank you to our sponsors, CSL Bearing, Chugai, Roche, Sobi and Takeda, whose support make HemeCast possible. <laughs>